And we're back to slowly walking or working our way through the Beatitudes. And as we begin this morning, um, I just want to remind us all that the Beatitudes are a pronouncement of blessings. And these Beatitudes, or the Beatitudes rather, were made by our Lord Jesus Christ in his Sermon, sermon on the Mount. And the Beatitudes describe for us the character of a kingdom citizen. And the last time that I taught through Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, should be in your outline. If not, feel free to open your Bible. Matthew 5, 8. We looked at this specific Beatitude, which says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And as I often do, I like to give us a review of what we've covered so far so that we would all be able to track, so that we would all be looking at it together and so that there would be no confusion if you're just joining us for the first time here or if you've missed all of the Beatitudes thus far. So please allow me to provide a review for us this morning Specifically of this beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart. So Christ is stating in his Sermon on the Mount that those that have a pure heart, these men and women will be welcome before him. They will be in the presence of God unhindered. And these are men and women who are truly acceptable before a holy God. Now I want you to consider the following what we've what we've been able to discover as we walk through the Beatitudes. And it's the following, that this access is not based on external cleanliness. Can I hear an amen? It's not based on external cleanliness, but on internal purity. To be specific, a purity of the heart. Jesus said, blessed or happy are the pure of in heart, for they shall see God. This is just a review, so bear with me if you were here last time, six weeks ago. What did Christ mean by purity of heart? What did he mean by all this? Well, we know that we could all give a sigh of relief that he was not addressing sinless perfection. For we, we must all look at the Beatitudes as a whole, or rather, they're building upon the previous statement. And if you recall, the opening statement of the Beatitudes are, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who possess spiritual bankruptcy, those who have spiritual poverty, those who are unable to save themselves. This is not consistent with a perfect person because they're in no need. He further says, blessed are those who mourn. And what are they mourning over? What are they sorrowful over? You know the answer. They're mourning over their personal sin against a holy and righteous God. These men and women that are kingdom citizens, or this is consistent of their character, these men and women are meek. They refrain from doing evil. Furthermore, they hunger and thirst. And what are they hungering and thirsting for? It's clear in the text. They're doing it. They're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They're in need of righteousness. They do not have righteousness, and they desire it like you and I desire food and water. Let me drive it home. Like you and I desire coffee. Can I hear an amen? And then Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. So what is he referring to? Well, again, he's not referring to sinless perfection. And he's also not referring to that vital organ that we all have that's pumping blood. But rather, when he says pure of heart, he is describing a, a specific place, a place where our intentions, a place where our purpose, the place where our inner self or our innermost desires reside. So with such statement, bear with me, Christ in a sense is performing open heart surgery. And he's causing us to look and reflect in our hearts. He's entering to very deep and very dark places, but that's where we hide our emotions or we keep things who we truly are. 
The last time that we looked at these uh, beatitudes, we looked at three truths together, and I'm going to provide them for you, and they're there in your outline. And number one, last time, purity of, purity of heart is purity of emotions. Purity of heart is purity of emotions. Kingdom citizens, these men and women have clean emotions. In the Levitical sense, we would say that they are emotions that are not forbidden or impart any uncleanness. Ethically, these emotions are free from corrupt desire. They're free from sin. They're free from guilt. I like this one. They are free from falsehood. There's no deceit. So let me wrap this up. These emotions are pure in the eyes of God. They are right before His sight. The second truth, last time it's in your outline, number two, purity of heart is having an undivided heart. Purity of heart is having an undivided heart. And I want you to notice that Jesus said, blessed are those who have an undivided heart. He did not say, blessed are those who have pure doctrine, which is a good thing. He did not say, blessed are those or happier those who have pure theology or blessed are those who have pure worship. These are all great things, but rather he said, blessed are those, happier those who have a pure, who have an undivided heart. And this speaks to the reality that both you and I, I'll say it again, both you and I are prone to create secret compartments in our hearts. We create secret vaults, hidden pockets, places where we hide our most valued possessions, places where we hide our internal idols. And Jesus says in Matthew 15, 19, if you want to write this down, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Saints, I want to say this again because I said it last time. Our current circumstances are not the problem. I do not know what you're going through right now. But I can assure you this. It is not your current circumstance that's the problem. Wives, it's not your husband that's the problem. Wife, it's your husband. I'm just kidding. It's not your husband that's the problem. Parents, it's not your kids. It's not your children. It's not our president. It's not our governor. It's not the police. It's not your boss. It's not your coworker. It's not your neighbor. It's our heart. Thirdly, a pure heart is required to see God. And this is true. There's no way around it, saints. A pure heart is required to see God. Purity, holiness, righteousness is a prerequisite, is required in order to be standing or to stand before a holy and righteous God. So allow me to suggest the following to you, saints, that when we all are clear with who God is, as revealed in Scripture, and when we seek to live our lives with clarity, of the, uh, with, uh, with clarity in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God becomes visible everywhere. He does. You know why? Because when we have the gospel ever so present in our thoughts and in our hearts and in our minds, we see him in working, God working in our personal lives. We see evidences of grace everywhere. We see evidences of grace in our marriage. Though difficult, we see evidences of his grace in our marriage. We see evidences of grace in our parenting. We see evidences of grace in our church family. Yes, we even see evidences of grace here in Menifee. We do. And when trials come, because we have clarity in who God is and we have clarity in the gospel, we rejoice because we know that he is purposing those trials to make us more like a son, Jesus Christ. However, when we have a divided heart, when we do so, our heart and when we, lock, when we lack clarity in the gospel, we lack clarity in his word, we revert and we focus on all the things that are taking the happiness away from us. And rather than rejoicing, uh, rejoicing we become bitter, we pout, 
we grumble, we stomp, stomp our feet. We feel that we have been wronged by God. We feel that life has been unfair. Now with these truths in mind, I want to expand and look at purity of heart and our behavior. And the last time that I taught, I have to confess that I probably offended some. Uh, I focused on a personal freedom of some of the men here in our church, and I made reference to wearing a fanny pack. You guys remember that? Uh, though few in number, they are very fierce. And because I'm seeking to be pure in heart, I have to admit that I too was a fanny pack wearer in the late 80s. But I have been redeemed. Amen? <laughs> and this morning, we want to keep looking at Christ's statement in the Beatitudes. But we will focus, we are going to depart from the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to go to the Old Testament. We are going to look at a portion of Scripture, an old worship song. We are going to focus our attention this morning on ancient lyrics, a hymn, <clears throat> a hymn that was sung by the faithful remnant in Israel under the leadership of King David. And this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 15. So please open your Bibles to Psalm 15. <clears throat> As a side note, I want you to consider that Psalm 14 and Psalm 15 are closely associated. And in some Bible translation, they are part of the same psalm. <clears throat> and just a few moments ago, we read Psalm 14 corporately. And if you were present, and if you could recall what we went over, if not, just look, go left. We're in 15, go left. And I want you to look at Psalm 14. And if we take a quick gl glance at Psalm 14, we are confronted with the realities of the human, uh, of human depravity, the unrestrained condition of the human heart. Let me give you a summary. It's evil, it's corrupt, it is abominable, it does evil, it is anti-God. And though this psalm is not flattering of the human race, it truly is extremely accurate of the human race. And oftentimes this psalm is attributed to the atheists, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I want to be clear that this was not the case for King David, the author of this psalm. This was not the case, and I'll tell you why, because in David's mind, we have to go back 3,000 years ago, and to his original audience, the nation of Israel, the idea of no God existing was not even a possibility. This is more of a modern idea, and there's much truth to be considered. You see, Psalm 14 exposes that atheistic, that anti-God, anti-morality sentiment that is ever so uh, prevalent. And Psalm 14, verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. I want you to consider briefly that it is a fool who speaks to himself about God. The, the fool is speaking in his heart things about God. And I want to be even clearer in the Hebrew text, the original language of this psalm, the words there is, take a look at it, Psalm 14. The words there is are not present. They're added in the English so that you and I would be able to follow and understand it in the English language. So this is what it says in the Hebrew language. The fool says in his heart, no God. The fool is saying, no God for me. And this is a conversation that is had in the heart. And I would say in a repetitive manner, manner in order to convince himself, herself. This requires volition. This requires active participation. Active, deliber deliberate denial of plain truth. Now, you need to be asking yourself this question. 
Why is a person who denies God, why is this person called a fool rather than misguided, misinformed, confused? But they are called fools. Well, I'm glad that you're asking yourself this question because Paul answers it very clearly in the book of Romans. Paul says that this person is a fool because they know that there is a God, but they choose to live their life as if there were no God, and that in itself is foolish. You see, with all the evidence that's presented before them, all the evidence in creation, all of the evidence found in Holy Scripture, the fool is fighting in, him, in his heart to convince his heart that there is no God. Why? Because it is God and God alone who has spoken out against their sin. It is God alone who has spoke against their bankruptcy. So in summary, the fool wants to live as far away as possible from God. And that is true of, the, of our human nature. And now let's look at Psalm 15. And in Psalm 15, King David is going to ask a series of questions, two questions to be specific. Two questions that will require an answer. And these questions are the fundamental, the most important question that has been asked throughout the ages. And this, let me summarize it for us this morning. The question, the essence of what David is asking is, how is one saved? How will one make it to heaven? How could we stand before a thrice holy God? I want you to listen to me clearly, saints. Psalm 15 will not give us the doctrine of salvation. Will not give us the doctrine of salvation. I want to be very clear. Psalm 15 is going to describe for us progressive sanctification. Let me explain what I mean by here. I don't want you leaving here this Sunday morning saying, I am going to live out Psalm 15 because guess what? You failed already. I'm going to live out Psalm 15 to be saved. That is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But know this, that if you truly are saved, this should be a description of your life. This should be a description of my life, not perfectly, but generally and in life direction. So now please look at Psalm 15 with me and follow along. I'll be reading out of the ESV. O oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blameless and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil, evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Let's pray. Father God, as we approach this ancient hymn, as we look at the lyrics of this psalm, I pray that this song, this psalm, this hymn of praise would teach us truths that are consistent with our Christian life. I pray that your Holy Spirit, which is the author of these lyrics, would bring conviction in our hearts that would expose patterns that are sinful and that we would run to the cross, that we would run to Christ and repent of our sins. This we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Saint some have titled this psalm, The Ultimate Question and Answer. The Ultimate Q&A. And King David, under divine inspiration, possibly with a harp in his hand, he writes these lyrics. And he asks, O oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Now currently in America, we have a president who appears to not welcome questions at times, it almost appears that he refuses to answer very specific questions. Not just this president, but several presidents have done this. It is common for 
these heads of states to utter a few words, do an about-face, turn away, walk away, refusing to provide an answer, leaving many confused. Difficult questions are routinely avoided, and in most cases, they go unanswered. And this has caused much frustration in our nation. However, in Psalm 15, David asks two questions, and he receives an answer, and that is so beneficial to us. Amen? As I said before, Psalm 15 is a hymnal of the nation of Israel. These were inspired songs of praise that served to encourage the nation, to rebuke the nation, to teach truth about God to the nation. So what we have before us are the lyrics to track 15 of Israel's greatest hits. Amen? And we have them right before us. And David ask, asks, Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? The question is, how are we saved? Secularism wants to deny life after death. And some in pop culture want to promote justification by death. What do I mean by that? As soon as someone dies, they immediately they send them to heaven. But that's not what Scripture teaches. The religious have tried to answer the question, prescribing religion, tradition, works, penance, sacrifices. However, we as Christians know that we are saved by grace through faith. It is all God doing the saving of sinners. Amen? In return, the recipients of salvation, those men and women that are bankrupt, that are mourning over their sin, that God has shown their favor, they respond to God in obedience. So again, remember, saints, this psalm is not describing for us the doctrine of salvation. It's merely describing progressive sanctification. And I say this because I know that sinfully at times I try to find ways out to excuse myself and not responding as Scripture has commanded me to respond. I know the struggle is real because I have it in my heart. But John writes the following in 1 John 1.6. It's there in your outline. If we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In other words, our words must match our behavior. And David is asking for us, O oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? Look at your outline again. Please notice the obvious that the word LORD is in all caps. That is suggesting to us or that is um, leading us to believe that God's covenantal name, the name Yahweh was used in the Hebrew text. So God, the transient king of Israel, is asking the eternal God, how could we come before you to worship? The word search, uh, sojourn is speaking of a temporary stay, and the word dwell is speaking of a, a much more permanent stay. And David is asking, how can we sojourn in your tent? How can we walk into your tabernacle? The tabernacle was a tent where the sacrificial system was in full display. You had the priest that would intercede for the people. He would, go into, he would enter the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifices. They would shed blood. And, and it was in the tabernacle where the faithful would commune and they would fellowship with their God. And David is asking, how can we be? He's asking God, how can I be next to you? And I love that question. I love that question because I have two young daughters. And you know what? I'm going to say this in faith. They love me. And because they love me, they want to be near me. They want to be next to me. But we see this true not only in family relationships, but we also see this in politics and even in the corporate world. And now there's no doubt in my mind that when David was writing this, there were many that wanted to be part of David's inner circle. Many that were trying to scheme to be next to David because they wanted to receive a reward. After all, he was Israel's greatest king. They wanted the influence. They wanted the prestige. They wanted those positions of authority. They wanted security. And this is true even here and now. 
people fighting to make their way to the top, possibly work in the White House or whatever uh, positions they can because they want the security that comes with it. They want to be with influential people. They want to be in those uh, inner circles. However, David is asking, how can I be before you, God? He wanted to be near to his God. Again, the tent was, uh, the tabernacle was a tent, heavy fabric that shielded people from the elements, the sun, the rain, dust storms. And in ancient cultures, if you were under someone's tent, that offered you protection from enemies. And David is asking, how can we come before God permanent, uh, uh, temporarily to worship? But more importantly, how can we stand before God and be before him forever? What a great question. You see, tents referring to a temporary, however, holy hill, hill is speaking of a city, is speaking of a kingdom. So David is asking Yahweh, how can we have access to come before you to worship and to live with you forever? And here is the answer. It's in verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. It's right there in your outline. A pure heart is reflected in our character. A pure heart is reflected in our character. You see, this is describing a direction of life, saints. Living above reproach, walking blamelessly, upright and without any blame, without questionable behavior, remaining consistent with what is righteous. Again, we're not talking about perfection. And I'll clarify in a few moments. But I find it interesting, and I've, I trust that in a group this size, you've also heard this too. I find it interesting how the unbeliever, how the unregenerate, how the sinners, how the enemies of God, how heathens, they know how Christians ought to behave. Many times they even charge you with the following when you're engaging in questionable behavior. Hey, aren't you a Christian? Hey, do Christians behave that way? Or when you're sinned against and you probably don't respond the way Scripture commands us to respond and the person that's sinning against you are quick to say, hey, Christians don't behave that way. I trust we've been there before. And Psalm 15 is reminding us that the pure, that those that will be welcome to worship God and live with him forever do not work iniquity. They engage in behavior that is right. They don't participate in lawlessness. lawlessness. They stay in bounds. They draw the limits where God draws the limits. Verse 2, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart. Point number two, a pure heart is reflected in our speech. A pure heart is reflected in our speech. Notice what, where the conversation is had. Look at the text. Where is it? You can answer it out loud. One person is following along and happens to be my wife. Amen to that truth. <laughs> There's a conversation that's being had, and the conversation is in the, ha is in the heart. They speak truth in their heart. They speak truth in their heart. Now, you remember the qualities of the fool in Psalm 14? The fool is saying something in his heart, but the pure is saying completely the opposite. The pure, the one that is acceptable before God, the one that will live with God forever is speaking truth in his heart. Now, I want you to consider the following. They are speaking biblical truth in their heart. Bringing their thoughts, bringing their feelings, bringing their emotions, bringing their wills in line with scriptural truth. But I find more often than not that rather than running to scripture when I'm in, in trial or when I'm in a struggle or when I'm feeling discouraged, where I'm feeling anxious, rather than run to scripture, I take a passive approach and I start listening to the lies that are flooding my heart. And this is probably just me, so please bear with me. I start listening to the lies in my heart rather than listening to scripture. Wrestling with my thoughts, wrestling with my emotions, and listening to the lies in my heart, lies in my head, lies in my thoughts. 
listening to that faint voice that tells me, uh, Danny, you're all alone. Danny, you're misunderstood. No one loves you. No one cares for you. No one understands. And you know what happens? The result is this. When I start listening and believing to those lies, this results in greater sin if unrepented. You know why? Because I start listening to these lies. I start repeating them in my heart. And somehow I repeat them so much in my heart and in my thoughts, in my heart, in my thoughts. And somehow they make their ways to my mouth. Anyone been there? Don't admit it. And more often than not, I'm going to use those same lies and I'm going to use them to assault those that are around me. And I bring charges when they don't meet or they don't meet my expectations. Am I alone here? Charging others with the same lies that we have in our hearts when we're frustrated. And David is reminding us, and he's reminding the nation of Israel, that those who will be granted access to stand before God are men and women who speak the truth in their heart. Does this describe you? Are you speaking God's truth in your heart? You see secularism, the world, our culture? The fool has said, no God for me, no scripture for me. And they seek to make their own truth. They seek to devise their own truth. They seek to get as many fact checkers on their side. They take a pragmatic approach. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Just leave me alone. However, it ought not to be so with the Christian. For us who believe our, our, our source of truth is found in Scripture. And that it's Scripture. It is that truth that we speak in our hearts. It is scripture we seek to align our lives to. Not tradition, not religion, not preferences, not customs, but scripture. And that is why Colossians 3.16, which should be a staple here in Faith Bible Church Menifee, because we frequently refer to it, quote it, and cite it, and read it. This should be true of us. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in abundance. And if this is the case, we'll be able to teach, we'll be able to admonish one another with wisdom, we'll be able to sing praises, we will have thankfulness in our hearts to God. In other words, we view every area of our life under a biblical lens. Men, we submit to Christ, we love our bride sacrificially, we pursue purity, we honor Him with our bodies, we provide for our families, we submit to church leadership, we submit to government, we work diligently, we repent of our sins, we examine our hearts, not because we're good people, but because Scripture commands us to do so. We speak God's truth in our hearts. Verse 3, who does not slander with his tongue and does no e evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Christian, listen, we, it doesn't end with just uh, reminding ourselves of biblical truth in our hearts, but now it requires an outward manifestation, an outward action of that truth that is internal. Outwardly, we also speak kindly and truthfully of others. We restrain our speech. We speak generously about others. We do not use flattery. We do not use deceit. But we use words that edify. We use words that build up. Look at Christ's example, John 1, 14. And the word, speaking of Christ, became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and, full, full of grace and truth. Ephesians 4.15 says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we ought to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Let me summarize. Christ did not slander. He perfectly restrained His words. In every situ uh, situation He used, He spoke 100% truth with 100% grace. How are you doing with this, Christian? I know I fail miserably. You know why? Because I love truth. And I value truth. And I will tell you the truth. And I forget about grace. However, we see that the worshiper who will be before God speaks the truth in his heart, but he does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor. Christian, 
Those who will have access to worship unhindered and live with God permanently do not slander. They do no evil. I'll say that again. They do not slander and they do no evil. And slander is such a great offense before God. It is such a great sin. And we've seen the evidences of slander. Nations have been divided because of slander. Empires have fallen because of slander. Families have been torn apart because of slander. Churches have been split because of slander. Friendships have been destroyed all because of slander. And in a group this size, there is no doubt in my mind that some of you have felt that sharp and bitter sting of slander. Some of you, your characters have been assassinated. Your reputations have been damaged all because of slander. And you know this feeling. And sadly to say, some of you are probably the ones that are doing the slandering. And we're all confronted in this Psalm 15. So every single person, as we read Psalm 15, we're probably hiding in our chair because we have, been, we have not been faithful to honor others with our words. Slander is evil, it's pervasive because it best describes Satan. Saints, there's no way around it. Christ spoke 100% truth, 100% grace. And this is what we find in Scripture to be the description of Satan. Satan is completely the opposite. He is a serpent of old. He is the father of lies. He promotes deceit. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is a divider. He is the slanderer. So when we engage in slander, we're not emulating Christ. And we read in this psalm that the worshiper and the resident of heaven does not slander. They speak kindly to others. They speak kindly of others. And again, look, if you look at verse 3 again, it says, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. This verse, look at it again, verse 3, speaks of neighbors and speaks of friends. So biblically, who is your neighbor? Faith Bible Church, many feet. Who is your neighbor? Let me give you the answer. Anyone you have contact with, that's your neighbor. Yes, even that person that cuts you off in traffic. That's your neighbor. But then it mentions friends. Who are these? Friends are those who are intimately and closely in relationship with you. As some have said, and I think it's probably the best way of describing this, Friends are those who run in when the world runs out. Those are friends. So here in this text, the worshiper that will have unhindered access to worship God freely and live with Him forever does not show disapproval towards the neighbor, that person that he just met at the grocery store, that person that took his parking, parking stall, the per person that just cut him off. They don't show their disapproval. They do no evil to that person. And furthermore, they do not take a charge or reproach against a friend. In other words, both casual and intimate relationships are valued and they're treated with good intentions and such is the character of a kingdom citizen. They're not engaged in excessive rebuking or scolding or they refrain from responding with strong emotions towards their friends. They don't blame them. They don't shame them. They, don't use, they use their words carefully to edify and the question we have this morning, like I've said before, how are we doing with this, saints? How have you treated your friends? This psalm is asking us, how have we treated our friends? Have we judged them too severely just because we're jealous? Have we possibly slandered them just to make ourselves look better? Have you been harsh with your words? Now, I, in no way, or this psalm, rather, is not saying that we do not lovingly and graciously rebuke friends. This should be happening quite frequently, church. It should be happening. Proverbs 27, 6 says the following, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. They're faithful. They should be expected. But what does this mean? Well, when we do come alongside a friend, we do it with humility. We do it with grace. We do it with compassion for their greater good. For their greater good. We, see, we seek to do it to build them up. 
Verse 4, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honor those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. A pure heart is reflected, point number three, in our principles. A pure heart is reflected in our principles. Saints currently were living in a lawless society, what used to be considered good, wholesome, righteous, legal, virtuous, is now considered to be illegal and rejected. There's a glorification of evil, violence, immorality, sin, defiance, and this is prevalent in our culture. It shouldn't surprise us. Under divine inspiration, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, it's there in your notes, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self. Tell, tell me if, it not, if it's not describing our current state of affairs. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Saints, this is something we have to admit. Lawlessness breeds lawlessness, however it not ought to be so with Christians. Those who will be welcome to worship, those who will live with God permanently, should live lives that are drastically different than the world. We should live lives that are opposite to the world, but oftentimes we want to live life like the world because we want to win the world over. But we find that in Psalm 15, the worshiper is living a life that is drastically different. They're living a, a life that truly reflects your will be done rather than my will be done. So this psalm, this verse in particular, is asking us, what do we value? What principles do we cherish? As Christians, we honor that which is good. We honor that which best describes God's character. And if you need help with this, Philippians 4.8 will point you in the right direction. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And sadly, in our day, many churches under political pressure have opted to remain silent embrace, partner with, condone, give thumbs of approval to certain sins because of political pressure. Some have even taken it a step further and say, we won't talk about blank. You fill in the blank. We are going to remain silent. However, this psalm is telling us that we don't join or approve of sinful behavior or lifestyles. We reject lawlessness. We call sin, sin. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. We long for the thing God longs for. We affirm the things God affirms. We reject the things God rejects. We denounce the thing God denounces. We align ourselves with scripture. We don't waver. We don't compromise. We seek truth. We seek justice. We promote and celebrate righteousness, holiness, and this is, should be the character of the man and woman who will live with God forever. Amen? Verse 4, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Point number four, a pure heart is reflected in our integrity. A pure heart is reflected in our integrity. I know you're asking yourself, what is integrity? Let me give you the easiest definition. Doing the right thing when no one is watching. Doing the right thing when no one is watching. Not changing your behavior based on the crowd. And as Christians, we ought to display consistency. Keeping our words and following through. Just a few weeks, James, the younger brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, encouraged us with the following, James 5.8. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Saints, the worshiper, the one that will live with God forever, will tell the truth even if it hurts. I'll say that again. 
They will tell the truth even if it hurts. You see, they seek not to manipulate the truth, massage the truth, twist the truth, play with words to leave um, ambiguity. They speak truthfully. They speak clearly. They show integrity by telling the truth, even if this results in self-injury. How are we doing with this? And oftentimes, we're quick to manipulate the truth, bend the truth a bit, tell half-truths just to get ahead, to achieve what we're after. However, in this psalm, we find that those who will live with God permanently, they seek to tell the truth, even if telling the truth might cause a loss of career, a loss of a sale, a loss of revenue, possibly added fines, possibly rejection or cancellation. But we tell the truth. You see, those who will live with God love truth because God is truth. Can I hear an amen to that? Our God is truth. Jesus said the following. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We love and we value the truth. Verse 5, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent? He who does these things shall never be moved. Point number five, a pure heart reflected in our finances. Yes, it even reflects itself in our finances. Money and possessions, our finances, what we have will reveal our heart. It will identify clearly what we really worship. And this psalm is not, we can take a, a sigh of relief. This psalm is not addressing that you never invest. It doesn't say that. It's not talking about not borrowing or lending money, but rather we have to look at the context. It is addressing the sinful practice of their day, that sinful lending practice, where they will lend to the poor at high, extremely high interest rates. And the lender knew fully well that this would destroy the poor. This resulted in severe poverty and even slavery. And this was all flowing out of a heart of greed. And this psalm is confronting us with the following, that those who will live with God forever won't use their money to oppress others. So what does that mean for us? We won't oppress others with, with our money. We won't seek financial gain for ourselves at the cost of destroying others. That's what it means to us. We won't seek to ruin others financially just so that we would get ahead. In other words, we ought to hold our possession. We ought to hold uh, the money or anything that we have, the wealth that we have. With, rather than holding it with a tight grip, we should hold it with an open hand. Who does not put his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. Look, it also, verse 5, addresses bribery. And bribery is a sinful practice of circumventing the legal system. It will persuade someone to act on your behalf. And one's favor, typically, illegally and dishonestly, as long as you give them a little gift or give them a little money, and they'll rule in your favor. See, bribery in the core sways judgment. It destroys the work of the righteous. This is dishonest, it's repulsive, it's unacceptable, it is sinful. Again, the worshiper who is accepted to worship before a holy God and the resident, a citizen of his kingdom, loves God above loving money. Does it describe you this morning? Does it describe me this morning? Well, let me wrap this up, saints. David asked two questions. How can we stand before you temporarily as we worship? And how can we live with you forever? And as you're sitting here looking at Psalm 15, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that we all failed miserably. All of us. The answer is, what is it required to be before God? You know the answer, Faith Bible Church. Man, if you know the answer, the answer is perfection. But I don't want you leaving here discouraged because none of us are perfect. Now let me wrap this up and provide you with some encouraging words. It is only through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we could be with God forever. Amen? And that's good news. It's not based on our performance. It is based on Christ and His perfection. So you and I, those of us who have responded in obedience, those who have responded to the gospel of Christ, we have eternal citizenship in heaven because it requires perfection and that price was paid 
through Jesus Christ. We have all failed already, and the good news is that Christ accomplished it all in our behalf. Let me remind you the great news of the gospel. Let me remind you that it was Christ who was despised so that you would be loved. Amen? It is Christ who was rejected so that you would be accepted. It was Christ who was isolated so that you and I could have fellowship with God. It was Christ who was abandoned by his Father. And our Father is with us always. It was Christ who was crushed outside of the city gates in the place of the skull so that you and I would be welcome into the holy city. It is because of Christ that you and I are able to worship God and live with him forever. Look at verse 5 again. This is so encouraging. Who who does these things shall never be moved. Saints, if this is true of us, we won't be moved. We won't be shaken. We won't stumble. We won't slip and fall. We shall remain firm, never moving, because of the perfection of Jesus Christ. You see, it was Christ who is a fulfillment of Psalm 15. I want you to look at Psalm 15 again. It's not you that are able to accomplish this. It is Christ that already accomplished these very things. It was Christ who walked blameless. If you need a reminder, it is his younger brother who calls him Lord. It is Christ who did what is right. It is Christ who spoke the truth. It is Christ who never slandered. It is Christ who did no evil, both to his neighbors, as he healed the multitude, as he fed the multitude. He did no evil to his friends. Keep in mind the Last Supper, as he knew that Judas had already betrayed him, he gave him the choice seat, and he treated him with much love and compassion. It is Christ who rejected sin. Let me remind you, he cleansed the temple because they were abusing the temple. It is Christ who loved righteousness. Think about this one. It was Christ who swore to his own hurt. It is Christ who spoke the truth, swore to his own hurt. Please imagine or consider this. 300 soldiers running up to Jesus Christ and asking him, where is Christ? Where is this Jesus? What did he respond? I am. Had it been me, 300 soldiers come in here, where is Danny? My response probably, I saw him leave that way about 15 minutes ago. It is Christ who swore to his own hurt. It is Christ who never changed. It is Christ who uses money rightly. He fed the needy. He paid his taxes. It is Christ who did not take a bribe. And it is Christ who will never be shaken. Saints, it's because of him that you and I will have unhindered access to worship God and to live with him freely, to be a citizen of his kingdom, all because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is why he said the following words that she be so cherished in her hearts. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's pray.